Uh, we're going to pick up where we left off. We left off after Jesus had called his 12 disciples, uh, 19, right in the middle of 19. I'm not sure why the, uh, why the people who put the first numberings put the verse numbering the way they did, but literally right in the middle of chapter 19, or rather verse 19 of chapter 3, um, I think the verse should be split there. Again, these first numbers are not inspired, so we can differ and be okay. But um, I think the verse should start. There's like a 19B there. It says, and they went into an house. Uh, new thought, and it continues on. So that's where we pick up tonight. But before we do that, I want to just take a moment to pray, ask the Lord to help me to maybe help you. And then, of course, to help you as you listen, uh, would you would ask the Lord to uh, speak to us and speak uh, through his word for us. Let's pray together. Lord, I, I need your help. I want to I want to be a help to people. Um, and Lord, I can only do that if I am um, showing them your words, if I'm pointing them to Jesus. And I pray that they'll they'll hear that. Those that are listening, I pray that certainly that I can help them. But Lord, I pray that you will draw them to yourself, that you'll pull them or sort of point their minds and their hearts to you so that uh, that they actually get the help, not from a man, but from God, you yourself. I pray this in Jesus name. Amen. So the question is uh, that I think this little text asks is what are you going to do with Jesus? So you've got to understand that Jesus has at this point in the text, this is in Mark chapter one through three, he has made his presence known. It is no question. Jesus is on the scene. They know he's there. So he's made his presence known. He's called now 12 men to be his disciples. These are men who will, some of them are called earlier. You see that in chapter one. I think it's Peter, James, and Andrew, and John, but they're called. But but now he's called these men. He says, I want you to, to do, I want you to preach the gospel. I want you to cast out demons. The whole thing he's got them going and doing, just the few verses prior to this. And now he's beginning the next phase of his ministry. Hence the reason that this study is finishing now, because this is the end of this phase of ministry beginning of a new phase of ministry. And as he, as he as he makes this transition, as this is happening now, you're going to see in this, this passage, starting in the verse 19, going to the end, three, I would say, typical responses. Uh, certainly that Jesus is going to see in his ministry, but typical responses that you will see that people have of Jesus even today. Uh, the first is you're going to see his his friends and his family, they call him crazy. Look at me in verse 19. So in verse 19, at the end, it says that um, uh, they went into a house. And then in verse 20, and the multitude cometh together again, so they could not make, could not so much as eat bread. So here's Jesus going into the house and another crowd of people follows him. He's just always everywhere Jesus goes, lots of people around him. And as they fought, as they crowd in there so much, they couldn't even eat. I mean, that's a lot of people. you you don't have a whole lot to do to pick up food, put it to your mouth. It's apparently it was uh, so many people. It was hard to move uh, to even eat bread. And then in verse 21, when his friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him. They went, they actually are literally going to physically grab Jesus. They're going to grab him and get him out of the situation. And they say he is beside himself. He's beside himself. Now they mean exactly what you and I would mean. If you use that phrase, I don't know if, uh, all, a lot of people use that phrase, but I, you know, you've heard people say oh, he's beside himself or I'm beside myself. Well, just the idea that you're crazy. You're just not right. You know, the things are, things are upset. Things are bad. And they're, they're, they're looking at him and saying, listen, 
we're concerned. I mean, let's be honest. That's that's really what they're saying. I'm concerned for Jesus. They're, they're not being ugly. They're not being mean to him. They're, they're concerned for him. But they're saying something ain't right. You'll see it again. If you go down, I'm going to skip all the way down. We'll come back uh, where we just left off. But we'll go down to verse 31. It's another scene just a little bit later. <clears throat> and he's there came his brethren and his mother. So now that was his friends in verse 21. Now this is his family. So his mama and his, and his brothers are there. And they are standing without. So they're, he's out. He's inside of the building. They're outside of the, uh, the house. And it says, standing without, sending to him calling him they're essentially saying jesus come on come on I, I know you're in there with those people you're working with them you're talking to them you're teaching them but come on come on out and and they're they're concerned again in both cases i think the family and the friends are concerned about jesus they're worried about him this time they're calling him home the other time they're trying to get him out of a crowded situation but <clears throat> either way they're concerned for jesus they they know him but what they know of Jesus is they see his humanity. They love him. Don't, don't miss that. They love him, but they love him just like you do, your children or your, your husband or your, or your friends. You love them. You know them. You know their fail, failings and their frailties, and you love them, and you're concerned for them when things aren't right, and that's what they're doing. So they see him. They know him. They love him, but they don't yet embrace his divinity. They don't fully understand that he is God. They're not dismissing Jesus. In fact, again, please don't hear that in, in what I'm trying to show you. They're not acting like, oh, you know, he's somehow not right in the head. That's not what they mean. But they are saying he's a human being and he needs to be taken care of. He doesn't need to be fully submitted to. I think we see this sometimes in, um, in this modern era with some what I'll call religious people. Uh, often you might call them maybe pejoratively. I don't, I'm not trying to say it in a pejorative way, but sometimes it'll be said pejoratively, like on the liberal side of the spectrum, people who are concerned for the poor, concerned for the needy, concerned for, you know, the, the sort of that, that, that kind of, uh, uh, that kind of religion that is very much about uh, the human, human needs of, of people. And, and, and a lot of times in that desire to help people, and again, I mean, that is a good thing. That's a right thing. So don't hear that as a bad thing. But in that impulse to do that, they will discount <clears throat> some of Jesus's teaching about things like homosexuality um, and some, some other related things where they will discount it, basically not submit to him as God. They will submit to their emotions. I recently was reading somebody I respect a lot. I really do respect a whole lot about this guy. And uh follow a lot of what he talks about and really appreciate what a lot of he has to say. And he was talking about women preachers. Now, I, I don't know where all you all stand on that. A lot of you, I know, I think I know where you are, but in case, in case we don't know each other, I, it's, we can have that debate any day. But right now I'll just tell you, my position is I don't believe that the Lord allows for women to be pastors of churches. I just don't believe that that's the right interpretation of the scripture. But this man's argument in what he was saying, I respect this man a whole lot. He clearly does believe that women are okay to be pastors of churches. And he was saying that people who don't believe that way are missing something because of all the wonderful things these women have done throughout the world. And what we're missing in saying that is, yeah, there might be good things that happen, but let's not have a discussion about the pragmatic outcome Let's look at what God said about the matter. Let's, what does he actually say? And 
we'll let the chips fall where they may after that. Again, I, I believe that that's not the right way to interpret that. I believe that the Bible is different on that. Not the point of my discussion now, but simply to say, we're going to submit to God. We've got to submit to him as God, not sort of look at him and say, oh, we feel Mormon fuzzy and we're emotional towards him. But ultimately, yeah, I think he got that one wrong. No, no, he's God. He gets it right all of the time. We're the ones who have to shape our beliefs, opinions, everything to him. And here you've got his family essentially calling him crazy. And I mean that in the most loving sense of that word. Uh, ah, you're just, you just, you just got too much on you, Jesus. Not understanding he's, he's the God of the universe. They're not dismissing him, but they're also not submitting to him. So that's one response from some of us can have. The second response we see is in picking up in verse 22, where um, there's another interaction or uh, run in here with the, uh, with the religious leaders. And you see in verse 22, the scribes, which came down from Jerusalem, said, He hath Beelzebub, and by the prince of the devils casteth he out devils. Um, they are, they're calling him evil. They're calling him demonic. They're saying Jesus, and by the way, Jesus had been casting out demonic forces. He'd been casting out devils. If you go back through chapter 1, 2, and 3, you will see this is a theme in his ministry. This is not just something he does once. They didn't misinterpret this. They say he's casting out demons because he's casting out demons. So he's doing that. And they admit as much. Yes, he's doing that. But they're saying he's doing this because he hath Beelzebub, a demonic spirit in him. He, he's doing this because the prince of devils is in him and casting out these demons. Now, I would argue, and that's one of the points Jesus makes, is that's a bit of a logical fallacy. Um, how is the devil casting out devils? Uh, in fact, how does he say this here? Um, verse 23, um, and he he called them unto him. So he says, hey, guys, come over here. I want to tell you something. He says, how can Satan cast out Satan? I mean, it's just, it doesn't make logical sense. How does that work? He says, if a kingdom be divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If the devil's against the devil, then the devil is defeated to begin with. So he's saying your, your statement doesn't make sense, first of all. But instead, what he is doing is he is going after the devil. In fact, look at what he says in verse uh, 26. If Satan rise up against himself and be divided, he cannot stand, but hath an end. But what he's doing is he's actually bringing the devil to his end. He's showing the devil who's boss. He is in control here. He is doing, that's what he is doing. He even goes on in verse 27, no man can enter into a strong man's house and spoil his goods, except he will first bind the strong man and then he will spoil the house. In so many words, Jesus is saying, you can't beat the devil unless you beat the devil. And that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm binding Satan. I'm taking his stuff. I am the one that's in charge here. They are calling him evil. The, the religious leaders are calling Jesus evil. But he is really the stronger man coming in to take the strong man down. He's the one coming in with a completely different spirit than they're used to seeing. Yes, they're, they're calling it demonic in verse, uh, what is that, verse 20, uh, 22. They're saying it's demonic, a de devilish spirit. But he says, no, I've got the, I'm, I am God. The Holy Spirit is doing this. It's, it's, he's got more power than the devil and he's making the devil sit down. So far from evil. In fact, he even goes on to say, after he says, listen, you got me wrong. I'm not being evil. I'm not doing evil things. I'm actually defeating evil. 
But he goes on to say in verse 28, Verily I say unto you, truly, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemies whither, uh, where, wherewith soever they shall blaspheme. But he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost shall never shall have never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. He says here, listen, not only am I not evil, I'm actually coming to forgive your sins. He is offering this forgiveness. I think it's telling that he's bringing this up to these people because these people are rejecting him out of hand. They're saying everything he's doing is evil. We completely reject it. But Jesus is saying, I'm coming to give you the one thing you need, which is forgiveness, which is why he tacks on this thing about blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. He says every sin that has ever been committed will and can be forgiven. He says, all you have to, I'm offering forgiveness. And I want to just make sure you that are listening hear this from me. Jesus is offering you forgiveness. Whatever has happened, whatever you have done, whatever the reason, no matter how bad it is, while there certainly may be consequences in this life, Jesus is offering forgiveness so that there's no consequence in the next life. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8 verse 1. This is what he's offering. But he says, if you blaspheme against the Holy Ghost, meaning if you take this forgiveness that I'm offering and either fully reject it or say it is from the devil, it is not for me. If that's what you're doing, you're attributing the work of God to Satan, which is literally what these religious leaders are doing. There's no forgiveness for that. He says that is the one thing, that is essentially the one sin, the, if you will, the unforgivable sin is to take his forgiveness and say, not for me, that's demonic, or that is from some other source, it's not God's. That is to reject him, you miss his forgiveness. So that second response that a lot of people will, will have, and you'll see this, you see this with, with atheistic people, you see this with people who have been hurt by churches and therefore turn their back on that. You see this from a lot of different, different kinds of people. Sometimes it's intellectual, sometimes it's emotional, but wherever the reasons are, what they end up doing for whatever, again, there's lots of reasons for it. Maybe some person has done something and legitimately hurt them. But they instead, what they do is in turn, take the forgiveness of God and say, no, not for me. They reject him. They even will call what he is offering evil. And let me tell you, the Bible makes it clear. Jesus makes it clear. There, every sin will be forgiven. But if you turn him down, he says, you're in danger of eternal damnation. That's in verse 29. And they, of course, in turn, verse 30 said, they say this because he's got an unclean spirit. They completely reject him, completely associate everything he's doing, not with God, but with the devil. But then there's a third response. And you see this picking up in verse 30, well, 31, where his mom and dad, or mom and brothers uh, are out there calling him to him. But then verse 32, you see, he's in this setting that you're, you're introduced to in, um, oh goodness there, verse 21, 19, 20, 21, where you got him in the house and all those people around him. So he's still in that house. Mom and brothers are calling him to come out, but he stays in there. And what does he say in verse 32? The multitude sat about him and they said unto him, and, and they said unto him, behold, thy mother and brother without seek for thee. So everybody's sitting around Jesus. Can you picture this? He's got people all around him. And they're all crammed in there. They can't, there's not even enough room to eat, the Bible says. But they hear 
Jesus's mother and his brothers calling him. And they say, hey, Jesus, I know you're teaching us right now, but you got some folks trying to get your attention. So that's that's what they're doing here. But what does Jesus say? Verse 33, he answered them saying, who is my mother or my brother? Now he's using a rhetorical device. He says, I, I, I think he would recognize that's his mama and that's his his brothers out there calling, but he's got this rhetorical advice. He says, now listen, who's really my mama? Who's really my brothers? Who's really my family? Who's really those kind of people? And he looked around about on them, which sat about him, this is verse 34, and said, behold, my mother and my brothers, my brethren. He literally looks around at all the people that are seated there, listening and learning of Jesus. And he says, in so many words, you all are my family. You're the one that are that are with me because listen to what's going on here. These people are seated there, submitted to his teaching. I want to make sure you know this. They're not perfect people. Uh, there's at least one of them in the group that's going to deny him. There's going to be put on the spot and said, do you follow Jesus? And he's going to say, no, I don't. He's seated. He's seated here listening to this. There's at least one person who would later on doubt that Jesus had done and was the thing that things he said he that he had done and was, you know Thomas he he actually had to see the nail prints in Jesus's hands before he would believe. There would be two in this group that would actually fight over who was going to be greater in the kingdom. The whole point of telling you that is to say that these people that are here are not perfect; they haven't got it all figured out, but. He calls them his family because, listen to what he says in verse 35, for whosoever shall do the will of God, the same is my brother and my sister and my mother. He's saying, if you've got the spirit of God in you so that you will do the will of God, then you are his family. So there's a third response that some people have, and I hope you have, and I know I have. And that is, I call him Lord. I submit to him. I want to do his will. I want to follow his teachings. Now, please understand that this is not because you're perfect, that you are having this response because you've got some something figured out in your, in your mind. This is none of those things, not at all. What the distinction is, is that you have the Holy Spirit. In fact, in Matthew chapter 16, um, Jesus asked the disciples, he says, uh, who do you say that I am? He had asked what everybody else talks about him. He says, what do y'all say I am? And Peter answers him and says, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And then Jesus's response to him is says, hey, that's right, Simon. You're blessed. Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my father, which is in heaven, and I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock, this rock of this truth, that I am the Christ, on that rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There's nothing amazing about you and me if we put our faith in Jesus. We're just regular folk, and uh, there's nothing really distinguishing about us versus somebody who basically calls Jesus crazy or somebody who calls him evil. There's nothing amazing about us when we put our belief in Jesus. But if you will call Jesus Lord, you will obey him. You'll, you'll follow him. And you'll see, you can see this in the life of the disciples. Again, Peter, James, and John, and some of these guys, you can look at them and you can see that he did amazing things 
in them. Peter's an amazing example of this guy who goes from basically just a, a roughneck fisherman to preaching on the day of Pentecost, an um, eloquent message, and thousands of people come to Christ. Is it because Peter was such a such a gem of a human being? I don't think so. I don't think he was any better or any worse than any of the rest of us. But because he put his faith in Jesus, Jesus did amazing things in him, through him, and for him. I think we got to think about what Jesus has come to do. He's not come to make us happy. He's not come to make us wealthy. Uh, he's not come to so that we can make him whatever we need him to be. Uh, he's not come to make us more moral or fix our political system. That's none of those things. But he's come to forgive our sins. And that's despite us mocking him and misusing him and mistaking what he's done for a bunch of other things. That, that, that's in spite of all that. And he appears to us, he loves us, and he offers us salvation. And my appeal to you is not to reject him. Not just to not reject his person, but even a believer that accepts him, don't reject anything he says. Don't dismiss it. Don't, don't mistake it for evil. Accept him fully. Puts in mind, as I close here, puts in mind um, uh, the words of C.S. Lewis, um, great writer. He's a really interesting guy to read after if you don't haven't read much of him. Uh, one book I would definitely recommend you take some time to spend some time with. Uh, he, he just has a good way of putting things. Um, in this book called Mere Christianity, just just sort of the basics of of Christianity, um, and he's he's just he's he's just so interesting in what he says. But one of the things he makes a, a point about in one passage, I want to read to you here in Mere Christianity. He says, "I am here trying." He's he's been arguing about who Jesus is and, and just trying to lay out really who he is. He says, "I've been trying here to prevent anyone from saying the re the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus." And they say this, this is what he says, quote, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. This is one thing that we must not say. A man that was uh, rather a man that was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. And he's right. If you think about what Jesus said and some of the claims he made, he would not be a good moral man that said some of those things. He would either be, quoting from Lewis again, he would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who said he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You have to make, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and you can kill him as a demon. Or you can fall on your feet and call him Lord and God, but you know, but but let us know, uh, rather let us uh, not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. He did not intend to. That point of all of that is to say that, what are you going to do with Jesus? Is he a liar? Is he a crazy man, lunatic? Or is he Lord? And I'm going to tell you, I believe he's Lord. And if he's Lord, there's a lot, a whole lot that we need to be obeying him for.